0: Hello and welcome to the Jubitate Podcast, your home for under-reported topics of the day, traversing the world, searching for sanity. It's time for the two-minute double dispatch. First up is a study that says that right ventricle enlargement is a major predictor for mortality among COVID patients. This was a CNN story, and it suggested that enlargement of one of the heart's four chambers, the right ventricle, was the best predictor of which patients with severe COVID-19 infections were most likely to die. A team of doctors from the Icahn School of Medicine at Mount Sinai looked at the health records of 105 COVID patients hospitalized at Mount Sinai Morningside in New York City between March 26th and April 22nd. Of the patients in the study, 32 of them or 31%, had dilation of the right ventricle based on an echocardiogram. Of these, 41% died by the end of the study period, compared to only 11% of those without right ventricular enlargement. Enlargement of the right ventricle was the only variable that was significantly associated with mortality in this group of COVID-19 patients, according to the study, which has been accepted for publication in the Journal of the American College of Cardiology, This is not the first time an association has been found between COVID-19 and right ventricular enlargement. Earlier this month, a case series in the New England Journal of Medicine described five critically ill COVID patients with enlargement of the right ventricle. We don't know why yet. It could be an obstruction of blood flow in the lungs due to blood clots, or lung tissue damage, or direct damage to heart tissue by the coronavirus, or some combination of those. Perhaps knowing this, can help fine-tune the nature of the care given, though all of this is a band-aid until there's a vaccine. Concerned about your sleep? Well, according to popular science in our story number two today, no one knows what a perfect night's sleep actually looks like. And the less you worry about your rest, the better it will be. The article goes on to say, All vertebrates alive today have a form of slumber. So do some invertebrates like fruit flies and sea slugs. You can trace restfulness back to single-celled organisms that split their time between periods of quiescence and bursts of activity. In some ways, sleep is just a state of inactivity. But there's something unique about it that we haven't figured out yet. Despite what our fitness trackers might tell us, we don't yet know what mix of deep, light, and REM, the three stages of sleep, translates into the best rest. People obsess over these numbers, but they aren't actionable. So the solution? Don't stress it. Figure out a good length of sleep that doesn't lead to fatigue or even grogginess the next day, and you're good to go. Welcome to the Dubitate Podcast. I'd like to welcome our guest, David Kosak. He is a rabbi, poet, chef, storyteller, and cogitator, he currently serves as the senior rabbi of Congregation Neve Shalom, the largest conservative synagogue in the Pacific Northwest. Welcome, Rabbi Kosak. Thank you so much, Mr. Khanna. The past few episodes have um, naturally been at least tangentially related to COVID 19. And today, I'd like to talk uh, to you about how you got through it, how you gave inspiration and guidance to your congregation and whether you could synthesize some of those coping mechanisms for listeners who are struggling. And you know you, you know this as well as I do, there are a lot of people out there struggling. So I'm hoping that we can have a chat and folks can uh, benefit from your experience.
1: Well, thank you very much for inviting me on to this podcast. I'm excited for this conversation. And I'm glad you only have small questions that you're <laughs> beginning with. <laughs> I, I also have a, a little bit of amusement that you uh, talked about how how I got through it, as though this were over. And I think, of course, there's there's a way in which uh, we've only begun. In fact, I I was waiting for, and think we're at the point. There's a point in uh, any pandemic or any really uh, challenge in life where it goes from being acute to being chronic, and it's important, I think, to sort of distinguish between the two because the responses of those two different phases are very different. And I think the acute phase, people do pretty well. We're really good with crises. We're not very good about making permanent changes. So short-term fixes, going out to the supermarket, buying up every container of spaghetti, of beans, of rice on the, on the store. We know how to do that. That's sort of hardwired in, I think, to the, to the human species. Um, our challenge right now is that we're looking at a, a long and, and unclear timeline. And what does that say about how we're supposed to move ahead? So if it's okay with you, I'll, I'll try to deal with some of the acute-type issues that my congregation um, has brought forth as a response to the coronavirus and then move on from there. Does that sound good?
0: You're right. Uh, it's not that I consciously feel that we've gotten past the acute uh, uh, stage, but it feels like enough has happened that we're kind of used to it, but we're not, we're not in that chronic phase yet. We're still coming out of the acute phase.
1: The the acute phase. So what what was the acute phase? The the acute phase was that um, we didn't know what was coming at us. I mean, in some ways, we still don't. And that the world suddenly had to shut down. And that was true for religious institutions, as it was for businesses, enterprises, many types of government functions. What I think is particularly useful about their religious model, even for those who may not profess a faith or be involved, is that one of the goods that we provide to society is community. And we provide community in an age in which uh, people don't really have community. It's very hard to find that in uh, secular areas of your life. Uh, Famously, I think we all we all—that's <laughs> a little bit uh, outrageous, but but many people once upon a time read a book called Bowling Alone. I believe Robert Putnam was the author, uh, and he talked about the change of American socialization from group activities into individual ones. And he talked about that in regard to bowling because it used to be not so many decades ago that everyone in America bowled on a league or large numbers, and that when he was writing the book, which is already a couple decades old, I bet the same number of people were bowling but very very few of them were on leagues so the opportunity to connect to one another has become more challenging even with all of our all of our technological tools and the the truth is though that we remain analog Creatures, right? We remain creatures who are social in nature and in genetic encoding, and that we need one another. We get, uh, even introverts need human contact, right? It doesn't matter uh, what your disposition is in that way. And certainly for those of us who are more on the uh, extroverted side of it, we get charged up when we're with other people, and that's what's being denied to us. Our humanity. Our humanity is when we connect with one another. So if religious institutions are one of those last places uh, and enterprises that market connectivity, that meant that getting shut down in the way the coronavirus did really, really threw us for, uh, for a loop. And That us for a loop on all sorts of ways. A, we're used to gathering, certainly on the Jewish uh, Sabbath, the Shabbat, beginning on Friday night through Saturday. But with our educational programming, our adult education, our social activities, our social justice, our in other words, our tikkun olam work, all of those sorts of endeavors which are central to the Jewish identity and also to us as as a community at Neve Shalom, all of those were challenged, had to go on to a pause. And here, I just want a quick little gesture towards Jewish practice. As a conservative congregation, we are uh, deeply committed to and guided by the the path of Halacha. Halakha is a Hebrew word, it literally means the walking, and it refers to this endeavor of Jewish law, by which we try to understand and hear God's voice reverberating through time into the present. And some of the deep functions of that are creating space, say on Shabbat, where you unplug from technology, where you don't use your devices, where you have a built-in rest and pause, and that coronavirus suddenly forced us to say either we're not going to meet at all and we're not going to be a community, or we need to rethink this. And the good news is, for for any uh, attorneys out there, is that law can be flexible. And so most of the Jewish world, and certainly my community, uh, fell into a legal category known as Sha'at HaDachak, or sort of an, an emergency time. And during an emergency time, you can resort to weaker legal opinions for a greater good, and the greater good here is to save human life, uh, our own and those around us in society as well. So we migrated so much of what we do to an online our uh, online presence. Our services are now live streamed. Our daily before you get to that, yeah,
0: uh, yeah, Rabbi, yeah. Uh, that's uh, I definitely want to uh, hear more about that. But I have uh, two follow-up sure. questions. Um, one, uh, you know, you had talked about the you know that it it kind of hit everybody for a loop and you had to rethink things but there have been instances in let's say the last 100 or 200 years you know things have been interrupted in the past right and and yep. i won't yes. even you know obviously world war 2 but other things as well and so what has it did you find that there has been a difference in how you've thought about it or is it almost like you were prepared in a way culturally, you know to think of it um, and think of the solution
1: well, those are the beautiful questions, I think, and certainly uh, for those of us who are connected to Jewish history, it implies and cultivates a sense of resilience to us, right? Anyone who sticks around the planet long enough is going to have painful episodes in your national or people's history. And those could make you um, taciturn or depressed, but they also do provide a lot of guidance, and and that's really important. In World War II, I suppose many listeners would jump immediately to think about the Holocaust and those sorts of concerns. But there were also guiding lights. So in the traditional way in which people would get divorced, the court that was involved in dissolving a, a Jewish marriage needed to hear the husband directly say that that this is his will to end this marriage. In, in Jewish law, traditionally, uh, the man is the one who has to initiate because of a dictum in the Bible. Um, but during World War II, they began to rely on telephone because it was so important to allow both parties to move on with their lives. And so even though you couldn't be a hundred percent sure that it was the same person based merely on a voice. A number of Orthodox rabbis, uh, I'm Herzog up in in Haifa, I believe, the chief rabbi of Haifa, uh, and others found ways to permit that. So what we discovered was that there are things that you can do at a distance, which historically were not done. And history is, is therefore very positive on a, a very poignant moment in a, episode that I found um, chilling and heartening was a time when my wife and I went to Theresienstadt, which is one of the concentration camps. And there's this very small room there, which I suppose the Nazis and SS were not aware of, where the Jews somehow managed to sneak out of the camp and gather to pray. And they didn't have prayer books. And on the ceiling, People who knew the prayers by heart actually wrote them on the ceiling so that anyone else who got to that room would be able to find themselves connected vertically with God, horizontally with uh, with other people.
0: I'm, I'm really glad you brought uh, some of those things up. Uh, the, the example of the telephone and a new way of doing things, I think that informs the fact that some of us, you know, it's been 100 years since the Spanish flu right? And mm-hmm. so yep. culturally, a, a lot of the you know, greatest generation are no longer around anymore. And, and so I'm feeling that it, it, there are certain uh, people who are predisposed to be able to shift paradigms fairly quickly. And I'm wondering if that's what took place here, or whether you were also subject to the same, you know, how long did that period of, of uncertainty last before you jumped into action? Right.
1: Yeah, no, we we jumped into action almost immediately, Um, and we shifted, right? And we shifted in part because the cultural understandings and the scientific understandings of the virus were shifting so rapidly. So as a a house of, of worship, we regularly will have several hundred people in our main sanctuary, and the governor out here, Kate Brown, had, in the week before, declared that they could have a maximum of 250 people, which now sounds like uh, quite a lot. It <laughs> sounds like Yankee Stadium filled <laughs> for a concert or a game, right? I mean, it, it's mind-boggling how much our standards have have shifted. So we had discussions among staff. We have on call uh, epidemiologists, and infectious disease specialists for advice, and we cordoned off alternating rows in the congregation, uh, spread people out. We we're able to have our last service of any size that Saturday, which, as it turned out, was actually my son's bar mitzvah and my son's coming of age service. Uh, and we learned even during that, looking at it, that, oh, you know what? We have a large enough space, we're gonna skip two rows next time, and we're gonna stagger people so that we can have about eight feet between everyone. Well, that was all well and good, but of course, that Sunday, the day after the governor shifted it to twenty-five. And so we shifted again. So there was a point in that early phase of the, what I'm calling the acute phase, in which change was rapid and unending and exhausting because everybody, not 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 merely us we're trying to make those adjustments but yes i do think that jewish culture or parts of jewish culture are very i don't want to say flexible i don't i don't i'm looking for the right word predisposed maybe predisposed to change right part of that is being one of the world's first cosmopolitan people right uh global people, wandering people, uh, uh, an ethnicity, a religion, a group that has lived in so many different cultures and countries. And to do that, as any immigrant knows, requires that you jettison some of the old ways, that you pick up some of the new ways, and that you try to find a fruitful and creative balance between old and new. So that is indeed deeply wired into the, the Jewish psyche, and it shows up in our storytelling, in our legal system, in a, a lot of apparatus that apparatus that are designed to help us um, cope with a always changing world. So,
0: but even even there, there are folks who are bound to forget the lessons of history. Did you have a resistance to this, or was there resistance to your stagger your plan for staggering the rose, for example, or for some of the other things that you may have implemented or, or, or was it fairly seamless?
1: So, so we have about 840 family units, so about 2000 souls or so. And uh, I, I would be hard pressed to come up with anything where you um, could find the uni- uh, unanimity among that many people. Right. So they're always going to be right. To be human is to, uh, is to have differences in outlooks and perspectives. So yes, we had some people who were upset that we had that service on on that last Saturday, even though we had cleared it with medical experts, even though we had conversations with lay leadership, with clergy, with infectious disease folks. We were not being willy nilly, we were taking a very considered approach and that's what we've done ever since. Simultaneously, Simultaneously, one of the things that a pandemic like this beckons out of each of us is our very primitive side. And that primitive side surfaces a a host of emotional reactions, the fear mechanisms, the fight or flight mechanisms, the... uh, Mm -hmm. The existential tools that we have carried with us since prehistoric days, those things get triggered, and they are unruly forces. So overall, there was tremendous agreement, and I've been very heartened, actually, by by how much our community has pulled in one direction. And simultaneously, there, there are certainly differences of opinion as to what should be done, and one of the conversations that we're trying to have, and and still, still working to have, is a discussion around risk tolerance versus risk aversion. Right? I mean, look, uh, as a as a as a quick disclosure, Sanjeev and I know each other from childhood, and uh, look, Sanj, there's a you're familiar with decision trees and and there seems to be a way in which most of us are not approaching responses to this from a decision tree perspective looking at cost benefit looking at how this decision here leads to another fork in the road that we have to decide about and there's a lot of variety that comes out of that
0: but i am heartened as well because when you look across the the political landscape and you know politics has been one of the the um, undercurrents of some of these episodes, you don't, you don't get the sense that there's agreement on anything. And so the fact that yes, you're going to have some dissenting voices, but on the whole, you had people, um, banding together and, um, you know, looking out for, for the common good, uh, and f- acting generally rationally. And then, then there were the elders, right. So to speak, or the, the curators of the whole process, or using those proper decision trees. Uh, that's a good story, in my opinion. And I think that that's probably, you know, it's not isolated, but I think we need to hear uh, more of those stories.
1: I, I think we do. And I think that, look, we need better science education in this country. And one of the advantages, uh, happenstance, or who knows why, uh, the Jewish culture has been very open to and hospitable to science from the earliest days. You know, uh, over a thousand years ago, one of our chief commentators, uh, a named, man named Rashi, Rabbi Shlomo um, said about the opening verses of the Torah, uh, that this is not a history of the world, right? So where some religious traditions got caught in a creationism sort of struggle, we we got past that. At least, I don't think Rashi was the first one to say that, but but he certainly said it very explicitly. That opened the way, right? We are not, even the most traditional parts of the Jewish community are far less fundamentalist than others. And so it allows us, um, regardless of our politics, to be, I think, more open to scientific evidence in some cultures. And that's a blessing.
0: I'm interested to know how you maintain sanity. And, and it's important for me to know how you did it because as a, you know, leader, um, your mental well being and your disposition is important to others because you're a model. And so therefore I'm interested in, in knowing how you approached it, whether it was conscious or whether you have the resiliency and it's kind of natural and you didn't have to think about it. And, and, it, and once you establish that for yourself, then how did you convey it to others?
1: Well, wow, that's a great question. First of all, if you ask my wife whether I've maintained my <laughs> sanity, you may get a different answer, right? Yeah. <laughs> but but that, <laughs> she, she walked down that road a long time ago. Um, look, I, I want to go back to that notion about the way it brings our primitive self up. And uh, I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with Maslow, a pioneering psychologist who sort of talked about a, hierarchy of needs, the, from the most basic, like food and shelter, up to the, the top of the pyramid, as he imagined it, which would be transcendence. And for all of us, the the virus is going to operate at different parts of Maslow's period, differently, depending on what our circumstances are, right? And, and for some people, and we certainly are seeing the story, and I do a lot of work with uh, the houseless, and Portland is unfortunately one of the epicenters of houseless in America. Um, There are people whose physical existence is deeply jeopardized. I'm fortunate, right? I, I have a home. My my family is well. We're healthy. There's enough food on the table, and what that means is that the virus is going to operate on me at at higher stages of uh, development, just because those more basic things, thank God, are handled for me. So that means, actually, when you talk about sanity, that's exactly the area where um, where this is going to come into into place. And I have definitely viewed this very consciously um, as a spiritual opportunity for those of us you know, who are dealing with, with those higher order challenges, right? If our primitive self comes up, if our fears are actuated, then the areas in which every one of us carries damage from, from childhood and scars of how loved am I and, and how am I connected with others, all of that stuff is going to churn. So I, I think that for me, part of the the path to resilience in here is accepting that this is normal and if you haven't taken any sort of body blow if you haven't felt a psychic um energy weighing you down at some points through here you're probably paying attention right i mean this is real and the impact is real and part of i think getting back to resilience is acknowledging it and and sort of recognizing how different this is, how different it is from normal life, what the risks are, uh, how it upends our life. So so I guess for me, I'm comfortable going to those places. I'm comfortable examining myself from that attitude. And it's the way in which I am able to take hard situations and use them as opportunities for growth. Um, so I so the, the first thing I just want to really emphasize that for, for listeners, right? sanity doesn't mean that i i'm feeling great every day that would be a mistake and and if that's the goal right um i don't know how realistic i mean there's some people who are just designed and will always be at that sort of a very even or even upper keel right human variety but i think most of us uh, can't do that so partly it's to recognize that, that this takes a real cost and then for me it's how do i use this and what do i do to make myself um feel good and feel productive. Uh, and and that's about going back to, you know, that work about. It. It's about connecting with others. It's about nurturing hobbies and interests. Um, it's for me, I started teaching a new course using a particular school of Jewish thinking known as Hasidic thought, which is very much about the internal dimensions of being a human being. And some of the writers I they've been looking at really are about deep responsibility, right? That no matter what's happening in the outer world, we're responsible for our our internal uh, reactions and how we respond to the outer world. So yeah, totally, um, very, very much conscious for me.
0: Please visit jubitate.com for links and source material for this podcast. We welcome listener feedback and ideas for future shows. If you are a podcast host and would like to be cross-linked to your podcast, please email info at jubitate.com. Okay, so that's a really good um, segue into uh, one of the things that I've been um, trying to convey as well is that it would be a shame. We we hear people give guidance about how you should take this opportunity to learn a new language, learn a new skill. Don't waste this moment, right? But they, you know, folks often um, manifest that in something as, to me, as fairly shallow as picking up a new skill, which, import, which is important. But I also think that you mentioned spirituality. I, I think mm-hmm. of personal growth uh, that's beyond just a specific skill, which feels tactical, but more strategic, it feels that if we've lost this opportunity, that's four or five months of a golden opportunity to either reconnect with ourselves or do something much deeper and much more spiritual. And I hate to think that a lot of people have just wasted that opportunity.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, our society, look, one of the things, if, if it's operating, if the pandemic is operating on each of us and pulling out those more primitive parts, it's, it's also going to pull out the more primitive parts of a culture and of a society. And one of our challenges in America right now is certainly how do we find a place of shared meaning right you brought that up in in regards to the political polarization but you know the the story of america that the capital a or, you know of, of a a destiny of a direction of something has sort of fallen by the wayside and it's been reduced in some ways just to um materiality and uh, there's a limit to how far you can go with it and in a time like this that's, that's challenged certainly but I think one of the other challenges when people hear, and I, I really try not to give obvious answers like, you know, develop a new hobby. Okay, but the people who have the most time, as a general statement, are the people who are having greater financial pressures. And, and those of us who are still working are actually working harder and longer because all of the normal tools in the environment in which we operate uh, have been removed. So, um, and and therefore, the people who have the most financial pressure, maybe they have the wherewithal to develop a new uh, skill, and fantastic, and God bless you, if that's you.
0: But But when you're dealing with fear and and the Mm -hmm. normal inertias, like the last thing you, I mean, it's the most difficult thing is then to say, I'm going to reorient myself to learn something. That's not what you're thinking. You're thinking, how am I going to get through this?
1: Exactly. Right. And I I think that's so part of it is sort of recognizing, you know, where we are. And um, you talked about the greatest generation. Uh, You talked about, uh, you know, earlier episodes, Spanish flu. And I grew up, both my parents went through the Great Depression and I inherited some of those ways of being. And, And some of them were really simple, like we always washed Um, cans of food before we would open them because you didn't know what would what had happened in the warehouse you didn't know if there were rodents running around right Uh, hand washing big thing and I know I've spoken with doctors before they said yes I washed my hands but not as assiduously as I am now so some cultural knowledge only lasts so long and we're going to recover some of the thrift some of the good hygiene that earlier generations had to learn because conditions forced it on them. And now they're forcing it on us as well.
0: Sure. And I mean, for how many years uh, to this day, right, China and Japan after SARS and then the sarin attack and other things that happened there, uh, they're still wearing face masks. A lot of people, you'll see that even before COVID-19, when you see um normal life in those countries you see that all the time
1: yeah it's and and that's one of the reasons why some of the asian countries were much more successful than the west at dealing with it because they got caught flat-footed for a thankfully less infectious disease some of the avian flus and you know that you referred to Uh, and so they had developed those habits before we got to something as tricky and fascinating biologically speaking uh, and hard to combat as as the coronavirus and so and and I have to tell you right, I certainly saw the news uh, you know for years now and seeing people wearing masks and I'm scientifically oriented. My dad was a scientist i I'm sort of had some training in that just uh, by by the house I grew up in. It never really got through to me either, right? And those other flus, even when they got a little news play, uh, SARS, et cetera, it never it never changed my way of being in the world, right? I never quite understood why they were walking around with masks, right? And and uh, you know, look, Ed Koch uh, famously used to say when he was explaining some of uh, his policy decisions or what he was hoping for. And, and people would butt back up against him. Uh, he would say, look, I can explain it for you. I can't experience it for you. And, and that's where we're at. We're experiencing this. Yeah.
0: Well, speaking of experience, I do want to know whether your experience, I know you speak to lots of folks. Uh, is that the same experience as other rabbis and synagogues in the U.S., or at least some that, with whom you've interacted?
1: Oh I think we are all busy um speaking to our congregants at a maybe a higher level than than we have. I mean certainly I always was handling pastoral calls, but the needs people are realer and being able to talk things through for people is is really helpful, right? I mean if you keep all those worries and anxieties bottled up inside, it makes it harder to operate. So I think most of us are investing more of our day talking uh, and providing pastoral care for people than we did before corona,
0: okay, well, I am interested in um things like what you know what is the long term change of some of these uh traumatic events that happen, and so they're fairly easy to spot when we talk about nine eleven uh increased surveillance and uh you know the the uh, security checks and What are the new behaviors? You you mentioned, um, you know, hygiene. And and that, we don't know. It may last a little while. It might last, it might take a more permanent hold like it has in China or Japan. But anything else, either spiritually or culturally, that you can spot right now? And I know it's difficult to be a prophet here about this, but do you have any sense that there might be something here? You mentioned, um, you know, the spirituality do you think that right. this has made a change
1: so i think it opens a possibility and and the change has to uh, or the willingness to have this be a doorway through which we work has to um, occur in some significant um critical mass of the of the population which then will begin to filter in and form itself into the institutions which form a country. So you're talking about work and some of the changes there, right? Those are institutional changes that will impact culture, and the culture will, will, will bleed out into larger society as well. So look, we have, you know, you're trying to avoid politics per se, and I'm, not, I'm certainly not going to take any sort of partisan position, but the last election. Um, was certainly a, and, and, and arguably before, because I think there were a lot of forces going for there, they, it was a, a referendum to some degree on, is the direction that America is going on the correct direction? Are, are we providing for people? Do we need to take drastic change in who and what we are? And so those forces uh, have been unleashed already, and this It brings out different notions, right? I mean, as you see government try to come up with ways to prevent the worst possible outcomes of this, there are things that we haven't seen before, right? A $600 bonus in your weekly, right? I mean, all sorts of things that that really were hard to predict. So greater job flexibility, time, hours for people, we were heading there, and that's a good thing. But what were some of the other problems in society that I think are the spiritual basis of that breakdown in a common story, narrative, or goal to which we're all pulling, right? Tremendous alienation and isolation for people, right? The opioid crisis, uh, cell phone usage. We are so disconnected from one another already. And this was like pouring, uh, pouring salt onto the wound. So... There are real opportunities to sort of say, what is the role of work in society? Um, how much uh, material goods, how many material goods and of what sort do I need and what sort of material envelope do I need to have around me, meaning home and furnishings? Uh, those sorts of things are being asked again. And I, I think that's a worthwhile conversation to have, right, because ultimately the only The only resource of any worth in this world is our time and and what we invested in matters. And those sorts of things are, you know, so present. So it's unwritten. The future is always unwritten. And the meaning of this moment is unwritten. So, yes, I see tremendous possibility. And I also see a lot of danger for it. The, The worst excesses. Uh, and dysfunctions in society could also be exacerbated by it. So, look, that's one of the reasons I'm here to talk and to share is because I I want my country to make better decisions. I want us to start connecting with each other more. Those, you know, I want us to talk to one another. Uh, One of the big areas of my rabbinate for a few years running, uh, certainly, you know, sort of, I haven't been as focused as much on it, is about dialogue skills and how we talk to people across difference, right? So those issues have not been addressed in our society yet. And boy, we, we need to get a grip on them.
0: You have to be encouraged by the fact that folks are, you know, people are questioning things in a way that they probably haven't in a long, long time. In fact, you can see the the national dialogue, people are questioning everything. Uh, so that, I guess, you know, if, if you believe that introspection is good and that (laughs) thinking through things is good, then this must be a good activity to do.
1: (laughs) Well, look, that certainly is, that's my bias, but I'm also, I've been around the planet enough time to also wonder, right? I mean, people are being introspective. Are they being critical and analytical of their own the way each of us is going through this so introspection on its own is i think value neutral but the way we do that introspection is really what matters and, no, that's, and that's a very good point yeah and that's that's what's going to really happen for us is is how we negotiate that and and these discussions and look i mean i my my politics can all be summed up in a single line right i i want a a good society to me is the one that raises the the most people the greatest amount possible and elicits the greatest potential out of the greatest number of people and and i don 't think that uh, left or right can answer that uh, on its own, but that 's the goal of what a what a good society should be and This is a moment of pause, and hopefully that sort of a, an ethos um, will be one of the things on the table again, as we sort of say, who do we want to be after this? We're not going back. If, if we were to go back to the way things were, we would have wasted a perfectly good crisis, as the, as the catchphrase goes.
0: Very well said. And I know that you've been skirting around this a bit, so I'm going to give you a chance to actually play prognosticator, prognosticator in this, yeah. which is, what is your opinion about um, the impact to the upcoming election based on what's happened with COVID-19? Wow. Wow.
1: <laughs> I, I actually have not been skirting around that. And, and the short answer is, I don't know. Right. I mean, no one predicted the current administration, certainly of the pundits. So I, I did wake up actually, um, February before the election, and I, I had this this deep premonition that this was going to be the outcome. Um, and m- maybe my one act of prophecy with that. Um, the the answer to your question really goes back to what I've already been saying: is what do we want this to mean? If people keep talking about we want to get back to where we were. Well, that could favor either A, the incumbent, who is where we are, or it could favor uh, an older model of politics, the the pre-Trump politics in the the case of uh, Joe Biden, right? But anything can happen, right? Imagine that the epidemiologists are correct and that we have a huge spike of cases in the fall, right? Now we're in spitting distance to the election. Um, Look, uh, presidents, (laughs) rightly or wrongly, get praised when the economy is doing well and get lambasted when the economy is doing poorly. And it's probably always about a year and a half behind their policies where the economy, you you know, the, the economy we have is the economy that was started, you know, years before that normally. Um, so, and, and that's not to diminish the role of public health and how well is a crisis being, you know, how, how well is this public policy and health policy been enacted? That's a, that's a different question. Um, but Mm -hmm. that I think will could radically shift the outcome of this election. If things stay down and calm, people may well decide they don't want to change because in times of difficulty, they, they tend to say, let's just don't rock the boat. Um, if it worsens, that, and people have confidence in, in Mr. Biden, that could happen. So I know that's not the answer you wanted. <laughs> well, uh, I, and, uh,
0: I, I'm, <laughs> I'm willing to accept that. I, I, I'm not going to hold you to, uh, you know, picking the candidate. I But um, I do think that you're right, that we're not far enough through this, and we don't have visibility um, into what is yet to come. For example, we uh, talk about these nine... Uh, you know, uh, human trials going on right now, and mm-hmm. a potential vaccine. Well, that would obviously change the landscape significantly. Uh, so there's still lots to happen between now and then. And so your even-handed approach to the answer, I- I'm I'm all for that. I I'm not going to press you any further.
1: Well, well, I'm, it's not that I'm I'm being completely transparent here. I'm not trying to hide anything, or 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 to be a, a diplomat of the sort who's who's not taking a stand. I'm saying that I. I truly don't know, and it's because I see so many variables on the table. Yeah.
0: Okay. Well, David, I am um, ecstatic that you were able to jump on and uh, and join me today. Uh, it's been uh, a very uh, instructive uh, discussion, especially since I think it's easy to make broad stroke comments about how uh, society is dealing with things, but it's only in the accumulation of all these different episodes that groups of people are facing where we can begin to draw some, you know, commonality of a shared experience. And so it was really, really useful hearing it from you. I appreciate you sharing that with
1: well, us. Well, th- thank you very much. It's been a, a pleasure and an a enjoyable conversation as well with you. And I, I hope that your listeners, um, that it sparked some of their own thinking as each of us in our own way muddles through this and tries to live the, our fullest life in a, a time of trial.
0: I've been speaking with Rabbi David Kosak, who's been discussing coping mechanisms, maintaining spirituality during the lockdown, and a little bit of politics. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: You're very welcome.
0: Please visit jubitate.com for links and source material for this podcast. We welcome listener feedback and ideas for future shows. If you are a podcast host and would like to be cross-linked to your podcast, please email info at jubitate.com. Until next time, when we once again traverse the world, searching for sanity.